You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. First of all, I got back from Columbia on Tuesday, spent a few days there with um, Linda Steele and Daniel Martinez. I'll share a little bit more about that next week as the Steeles are on uh, vacation this weekend. Uh, so I'll show you a couple pictures and say a little bit about my trip uh, next week. But, uh, you know, I, I am finally over with my annual four-week break from preaching. Uh, every year in June and, and part of July, I'll take about four weeks off from preaching. It helps me. It recharges my batteries, kind of helps me to reorient myself. And it gives other people opportunities and, and, and also allows you to hear from other voices, but just, you know, rather than just myself. Uh, but now, you know, like, like always happens, by about week three, week four of my break, I'm like, come on, let's get this over with. I'm ready to preach again. So that's where I'm at, and I'm ready to go. Uh, the title of my sermon this weekend is God and the Gallows. God and the Gallows. And I'm going to be telling the story today that's given to us in the book of Esther. And my text is from selected passages from the first two chapters that I've kind of pieced together, and uh, it'll be easy for you to follow on the screen. So let's look at the um, opening text taken from chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Esther. It's going to give us a little bit of the, the setting, and then, then I'm going to tell the story in my own words. First two verses of Esther, chapter 1. These events happened in the days of King Xerxes who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. And then in chapter 2, verses 5-7, through At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shammai. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. Okay, so that sets us up. Our story today is taking place at the height of the Persian Empire during the reign of King Xerxes, who ruled from his royal palace in the capital city of Susa, which would be found somewhere today in modern Iran. And at some point in Xerxes' reign, he has this impulse in his mind that for six months he wants to have a celebration of the glory of Persia. And so for a six-month period, they bring out all of the treasures of Persia and they bring them out into open display because Xerxes wants the people of Susa and beyond to be reminded about just how wealthy and powerful and mighty the Persian kingdom was. So that's exactly what happened. There was this six-month celebration of the Persian Empire that took place right there around the palace in Susa. And he decided that 
following this six-month celebration, he wanted to cap it all off by hosting all of the men of Susa in his palace for a seven-day feast. And while all the men were feasting and drinking in one side of the palace, all of the women of Susa would be invited to be hosted and entertained by Queen Vashti in a separate part of the palace. So this is what is happening for seven days at the end of the six-month period. And towards the end of the seven-day feast, probably under the influence of his own wine, Xerxes sends a messenger to the other corner of the palace to summon Queen Vashti because he wants Queen Vashti to come to where all of these drunken men are gathered and he wants to parade his wife around like a trophy so that all these drunken men can leer upon her great beauty. But when this messenger reaches Queen Vashti, she just outright refuses. She doesn't care to be treated like an object and be gawked at by all these inebriated men. She says, I'm not going to do that. Well, of course, this greatly uh, embarrassed the king, as you can imagine. I mean, he's, he's the king of Persia, Persia the, the, the emperor of the Persian Empire. He's the most powerful man on the planet, in other words, and his own wife won't listen to him. And this infuriated him, and it created kind of a problem. People there in the palace, they started whispering to one another, man, if word gets out about this, that the king's own wife won't listen to him, well, all these women are going to run amok. So something had to be done. Steps had to be taken, and Queen Vashti was deposed. No longer the queen. And in fact, King Xerxes issued a, a royal decree according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Irrevocable decree. Every man must be the master of his own house. Signed by the king. There, take that. Well, this, this created another issue. There's now a vacancy. Persia has no queen. And Xerxes has to find a new queen. And here's how they went about that in ancient pagan Persia. All of the beautiful young girls of Susa were rounded up. Beautiful young virgins were told. And they were brought to the palace to be placed into the harem of the virgins. And among these beautiful young girls that was selected is a certain young, beautiful woman named Esther. We read about her just a moment ago. Esther was a Jew, and she was being raised by her cousin, who was more like a stepfather to her, Mordecai. And Mordecai, he was kind of this low-level royal official there in the king's palace. And the reason why these two Jews, Esther and Mordecai, were located in Persia at this time is because generations earlier, their ancestors had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon during the Babylonian Empire. But as always happens, empires changed hands. Now the Persians are running things. And so the, the, the descendants of that original group that was exiled to Babylon They've been migrated over to Susa. They've been migrated over to Persia. And now Esther and Mordecai are living there in the Persian capital. So one of these beautiful young girls selected to come into the harem was Esther. But before Esther left for the palace, Mordecai gives her one final piece of advice. 
He says, Esther, I think it would behoove you if no one knew that you're a Jew. If you can just keep that secret, I think things will go better for you. And so off young, beautiful Esther goes into this harem where these young girls went through a 12-month beauty treatment program. Imagine that. 12 months of beauty treatments. And I'm not going to sanitize it. I'm just going to tell you what happened. You know, the Bible is mostly PG-13, except when it's rated R. And what would happen is each of these beautiful young girls, after going through these 12 months of beauty treatments, one by one, one at a time, each one of these young girls would be brought to King Xerxes and they would spend the night with King Xerxes, following which they would be transferred from the harem of the virgins to the harem of the concubines, and they would become one of the king's many concubines, and they would not see him again unless he were to summon them. And this is what Esther's gotten mixed up in. I, I, I doubt she had any choice in the matter. So she has her night with the king, and lo and behold, the king is smitten with her, and he falls in love with her, and Esther is selected to be the next queen of Persia. So that Persia now has a Jewish queen, but nobody knows it. Five years go by, and during these five years, something very important happens. Remember I told you Mordecai was a low-level royal official serving in the king's palace, and he comes upon this assassination plot. Turns out two of the king's eunuchs were planning to murder King Xerxes. And somehow or another, Mordecai learns about this plot and he exposes it. He reports it to the proper authorities and these two would-be assassins are arrested and executed and King Xerxes' life is spared. And all of this was recorded in the royal records. Around this time, a Persian man by the name of Haman, who was very vain and very proud, very stuck on himself, he receives this lofty promotion. And he gets exalted to the highest position other than king. He becomes the king's chief advisor, making Haman one of the most powerful men on the planet. And so he's exalted to this high position, and he's exalted in the eyes, in the, est in the estimation of the people. And every time Haman leaves or enters through the royal gates of the palace, all of the ordinary peasants who would be hovering around, they would bow to Haman. Not just simply as an act of respect, but really as a form of worship. Everyone would bow to Haman. Everyone except one guy, Mordecai the Jew who refuses to bow out of religious conviction, out of his commitment to God. And it drives Haman nuts. I mean, if you're Haman, everything's coming up roses for you. You've got the world by the tail. You've been exalted to this incredibly high position. And the whole capital of Susa is bowing to you. And you're advising the most powerful man on the planet. And yet, what Haman focuses on is this one guy who refuses to get along with the program. And it eats at him. It drives him insane. 
he can't stop thinking about Mordecai. And this hatred begins to simmer on, in his heart, and, and he, it, to the point it boils over, and he decides he wants to find a way to murder this man. But he actually goes even further, and he says, you know what, why just get rid of one Jew? I'm going to take my wrath and my hatred upon all the Jews. And so Haman hatches a plot of his own, and he goes before King Xerxes, and he says, Your Majesty, there's a group of people in your empire who cannot be trusted. And what I want you to see about Haman is he plays the role of the Satan, the accuser. And he begins to bring accusation against the Jews in the ears of King Xerxes. And he says, Sir, these people are peculiar, they're different, they will lead to your downfall. And it's here where Haman proposes his final solution. And he says, Your Majesty, I propose that we appoint a day, let's say the 13th day of the month of Adar. And let's sign a decree that on the 13th day of the month of Adar, all of the Jews in your empire are to be put to death. We're just going to take care of it once and for all. There will be a big massacre on that day. And your majesty, because I'm so committed to the well-being of your kingdom, I'm willing to personally fund it out of my own resources. And King Xerxes says, well, if that's how you feel, if you feel like we're really in danger and you're, you're, you're willing to fund it yourself, then why not? And King Xerxes signs a decree, an irrevocable decree, that on the 13th day of the month of Adar, all of the Jews in Persia are to be put to death. Well, when Mordecai and his fellow Jewish neighbors there in Susa, when they hear about what's happened, it devastates them, and they put on sackcloth, and, and they begin to go into mourning and fasting. Meanwhile, Esther has been confined inside of the palace, and she's not aware of any of this that has taken place. She's only heard that her stepfather, Mordecai, has been wearing sackcloth, and he's mourning, and he's fasting, and, and she doesn't know why, and she's concerned. So Mordecai, excuse me, Esther sends a, a messenger to Mordecai to summon him to the palace so that she can meet with him and learn what's happened, but she sends some, some clothing, some fine clothing for him to, to change into because you can't come into the king's palace wearing sackcloth. You've got to wear the right kind of clothing. And so she sends some fine clothing with this messenger telling Mordecai, please come to the palace and meet with me so I can learn what's happened. And Mordecai absolutely refuses. He, he says, I'm not going to put off my sackcloth. I'm in mourning and, and I'm not going to change. But he says, send this message to Esther. Tell her that even though I told her to not tell anyone she's a Jew, to keep that a secret, tell her because of what's happened, because of these circumstances, I believe now is the time to let it be known who she is. That she is a Jewish queen. And now is the time for Esther to use her position to intercede for her people. Esther responds through messenger. You know, they're communicating through messengers. And Esther tells Mordecai, it's not that simple. You've got to understand how things work in, in the king's palace. I can't just waltz into the throne room and summon the king if I haven't been called. If I haven't been bidden by him, I can't just intrude upon his day. That's punishable by death. 
so he ha- unless he were to extend the scepter to me, then I could make my request, but he hasn't even summoned me for 30 days. I don't even know if this can be done. I'm not sure I can do anything about it. And Haman sends a message in response telling Esther, don't think you're safe just because you're in the palace. We're all in jeopardy. We're all in danger. And he says to his young cousin, now's the time to summon your courage. Who knows? Maybe this whole thing has happened to you for this very reason. Maybe you've become queen for such a moment as this. And after contemplating this, Esther eventually responds one last time to her stepfather Mordecai telling telling him go ahead and summon my people to a fast let's all fast for three days and after that three-day fast I'm going to go before the king and if I die I die that's exactly what happens on the appointed day Esther dares to enter into the king's throne room without being summoned and she intrudes upon the king's presence. And as she walks into the throne room, King Xerxes looks upon her and, and, and she's risking her life and he understands it, but he tells himself for her to take such drastic measures, there must be something very important. She's never done this before. Uh, she's got some important request to make. And so he extends his scepter to her, allowing her to speak. And he says, Esther, what request do you have of me? I, I can tell you up to, you can ask for up to half my kingdom and it wouldn't be too much, which is kind of an expression, a way of saying, my heart is generous right now towards you. What do you want? But Esther is very wise. She understands the importance of timing and she senses that this is not quite the moment, but I need to lay some groundwork. And so she says, your majesty, I want to host a banquet and I want to invite you. I want you to come to this banquet And I want you to also bring your your chief advisor. What's his name? Is it like Haman or something? Make sure he comes as well. So the king says, certainly, we can do that. And so the king and Haman arrive at this feast that's been prepared for, for them by Esther. And we're told that while they were enjoying their wine, the king says, now, Esther, I, I, I want to know, what do you really want? I know you wouldn't risk your life just to ask me to a banquet You've got a more serious request. What is it? And again, Esther realizes maybe this is not quite the moment. Let me continue building some groundwork here. And so she says, uh, tomorrow I'm going to have another banquet. And by the way, I like banquets. Invite me to banquets. But I'm having another banquet. I want the both of you to come again. I want King Xerxes and I want your chief advisor, Haman. I want you both to come and we'll have a nice feast again tomorrow night. And so the king just shrugs his shoulders and says, okay, we can do that. Now, if you're Haman, think about Haman for a moment. How do you think Haman is feeling? What, what do you think Haman is thinking? I, I think he's on top of the world. He can't, um, he can't even believe his good luck. I've been promoted to this lofty position. I'm like the second most powerful man on the planet. I'm the king's advisor. I'm having private dinners with the king and queen of Persia. Can life get any better? And Haman can't wait to go home and tell his family and friends his good fortune. And so he's on his way home to go tell his family and friends. But who does he encounter on the way but Mordecai, the Jew, who again refuses to bow to him. And it just puts a cloud over the whole thing. And it just eats at him. 
And Haman gets home and he tells his family and friends, he says, I know I should be happy. I know I should be excited. I've been promoted. I'm the chief advisor to the king. I'm having private dinners with the king and queen. Nobody else is invited. I know I should be on top of the world, but I can't stop thinking about this Mordecai idiot who refuses to bow. And I'm just obsessed with it. I can't get it out of my mind. And I know it's all about to get taken care of. I know on the 13th day of the month of Adar, all of these Jews are going to be done away with. And I'll never have to worry about it again. But what I am concerned with is that I'm going to go to that banquet tomorrow and I'm not going to be able to enjoy my meal because I'm going to be thinking about Mordecai the whole time. And one of Haman's family members says, Haman, you're smarter than this. You've got influence with the king. Use it. They say, here's what you ought to do. I think you ought to build this big gallows. Construct this gallows, like 75 feet tall, massive gallows. And then tomorrow morning, first thing in the morning, go before King Xerxes and make up some charge against Mordecai. Accuse him of something. You'll come up with something. And then get the king's permission to hang Mordecai on that gallows tomorrow morning. That way you can go to the banquet tomorrow night and you can enjoy it and it'll be over with and you don't have to think about him again. Haman says, that's a great idea. And so he, on the spot, he has this big gallows built, huge gallows. And then that night he sleeps like a baby. Meanwhile, King Xerxes is having a sleepless night. A bout of insomnia has come over him and he's tossing and he's turning and eventually he just gives up on sleep altogether and he calls one of his servants into the room and he says why don't you read to me from the royal records I don't know maybe he felt like it would be so boring it would be like a lullaby or something but this servant this poor soul has to read the royal records now in the middle of the night to King Xerxes and he's reading and he's reading all the way into the wee hours of the morning and dawn's about to break and he's still reading but eventually he gets to this incident that he's reading about that took place several years earlier where Mordecai one of these low-level servants in the palace discovers and uncovers this assassination plot against the king and reports it and it ends up sparing the king's life and King Xerxes gets to thinking and he's like hey was anything ever done to honor this man who saved my life and the servant says no nothing was done and King Xerxes says well that's not right we got to rectify this we got to make this right and so King Xerxes starts trying to come up with some creative way to honor this guy Mordecai and as he's pondering this Haman walks into the throne room, but before Haman can say anything, King Xerxes says, Haman, let me ask you a question. Um, What should be done for the man who the king wishes to honor? And Haman's thinking, he's talking about me. I'm the guy. And so Haman says, here's where I think we ought to start. How about we have one of your royal robes placed on this man's shoulders? We have one of your royal ornate crowns placed on his head. Uh, maybe have one of the royal horses brought out of the stable. And I think you should make one of your high-ranking officials lead this man on this royal horse all through the streets of Susa, shouting at the top of his lungs, thus let it be done to the man who the king wishes to honor. I think that'd be a great way to honor this man. King Xerxes says, that's, that's fantastic. I think that's a perfect idea, Haman. And I want you to go and do everything you said. Just 
just to the detail. Don't leave anything out. And I want you to go do it for Mordecai the Jew. Absolute disaster. Worst day of Haman's life. But he can't get out of it. He has no choice. Haman gets the royal robe, places it on Mordecai, puts the crown on his head, has him placed on this royal horse, and all day long, Haman has to walk through the streets of Susa, leading Mordecai on the horse, shouting out to everyone within earshot, thus let it be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. He only then has enough time to rush home, change clothes so he can be at the banquet that night with the king and queen. Esther Haman, King Xerxes, they're at this dinner the second night. And again, they're enjoying their wine. And the, the time comes where the king says, Now, Esther, I, I want to know something. I know you've got a big request to make. You've been hovering around this for a little while. And I'm telling you, my heart's generous. Up to half my kingdom would not be too much. What is it that you really want? And this time, Esther says, I want the life of my people. My people have been sold out. And they've been sold out, not just, not just sold into slavery or anything like that. If it were just simply that, I wouldn't even bring it up, but they've been sold unto death because of the workings of a monstrously evil man who has conspired against my people to have them killed. And Xerxes says, who is this evil man? And Esther says, Haman. And in that moment, the king begins to realize what's happened and how he's been used for his own chief advisor's personal vendetta. And he's filled with rage, storms out of the room, goes up to his balcony to collect his thoughts. Meanwhile, Haman falls to the ground before Esther and just clutches her ankles, pleading for his life, pleading for mercy. And while that's happening, Xerxes walks back into the room and says, oh, now you're going to touch my wife? And, and he's filled with fury. And in that moment, one of the king's eunuchs who's standing guard there in the palace happens to look out the window and says, oh, look, gallows. And on the spot, Haman is hung upon his own gallows, and the Jews are saved. Amen. Well, that's the story of God and the gallows. But did you notice anything unusual in the telling of the story of God and the gallows? You may have noticed, if you were paying attention, that never once did I mention any reference to God. Why? Because God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. In this entire Bible, there's one book out of 66 books that never references God. And it's the book of Esther, 10 chapters long. Never mentions God, never mentions prayer. But how many of you realize that even though God is never directly or explicitly referenced in the book of Esther, at every turn, God is active and engaged in the story. There are no miracles in the book of Esther, at least not in the supernatural kind of sense that we tend to think of when we hear the word miracles. But there are, of course, interventions of God. They are miracles, not of a supernatural nature, but they are miracles of timing that you might call coincidence. I mean, the very fact that on the night before 
Haman is going to falsely accuse Mordecai to have him hung on a gallows. It just so happens that the king is having a sleepless night. And it just so happens that the servant is reading from the royal record books and mentions this incident that took place when Mordecai spared the king's life. You might call these coincidences, but what Christians have historically called it is providence. That God was present through providence, hidden from the eye, but present in providence in the things of this story that just sort of work out. And you recognize it at the end, you see it afterwards, and you're able to identify the handiwork of God. That's why to this day, when the Jewish people commemorate these events in this story during the Feast of Purim, did you know that the children, all of the children, will wear, wear costumes? Because it's a reminder to them that God is often in disguise. God is often disguised as coincidences. But it's providence. Things just working out in a timely fashion. So where is God when you can't see him? Well, it doesn't mean that he isn't there. When God is not seen, he is still present and at work in your life. And when it looks like nothing supernatural is happening, it doesn't mean that miracles are not occurring. They're happening all the time. And the way things just work out. Now, this would be a perfect opportunity for me to just simply close this sermon. It's a decent sermon. It's a good story. And I'm tempted to close it right now. But I can't do it quite yet. Because it would be dishonest. I'm tempted to close it because you know what? There's part of me that would rather just leave you with the impression that righteous people are never found on the gallows. That if you just worship God and serve Him with your life, everything's always going to work out. You're not going to go through anything bad. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. And that's just simply not true. What happens when you are on the gallows? What happens when your suffering is so severe that it's like God is on the gallows? That it's your faith in God that is being killed on that gallows? God on the gallows. Why do, I do a, why, why do I use a phrase like that? God on the gallows. I use that phrase because of something that happened to a man named Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a Romanian-born Jew. He was a Holocaust survivor. In 1944, at the age of 15, Elie and his family and his entire community were rounded up and taken captive into Nazi concentration camps, first in Auschwitz, then in Buchenwald. This photo that you're looking at, this is not just a stock photo of the Holocaust. Elie Wiesel is in this photograph. He's on that second level of bunks. He's the seventh person from the left. You can just see his face, 15 years old, in Buchenwald. He tells the story of how his father died in Auschwitz. His father had been savagely beaten by Nazi prison guards, concentration camp guards. And that night as his father lay in his bunk dying, Ellie, his son, 15 years old, was laying on the bunk below him. 
And in the middle of the night, Ellie's father summoned the last ounce of strength that he had to call out to his son. And he just whispered, Ellie, come to me. Come to me, Ellie, Ellie, come to me. And this 15-year-old below his father heard every word, but he was paralyzed with terror. Because he's afraid that if he makes a move, if he gets out of his bunk, the Nazis are going to severely beat him. And so he lays frozen in his bunk. And he wakes up in the morning to find that his father had been taken to one of the ovens. And he said, I'll never be able to forgive myself for that. If you've ever read that story, you probably won't read it twice. It's almost too much to bear. Well, Ellie survived the Holocaust, but, but none of the rest of his family did. His, his father, his mother, his younger sister were all killed in the concentration camps. He lost his family, but he didn't just lose his family. He lost his faith. He had been a very devout worshiper of God. He loved the prayers. He loved the scriptures, but he lost it all in Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And he vowed to himself that he would never speak of it and he would never write of his experience as long as he lived. And, and he didn't for 10 years. But in 1955, he began to write. And in 1960, he published this book for which he would win a Nobel Prize. I read this book last week on my flight to Columbia. Read it in one day. It's an awful book. He tells about his experiences as a 15, 16-year-old kid in Auschwitz and in Buchenwald. He tells about this one particularly gut-wrenching experience. There had been an infraction of some sort that was committed by some of the Jews in the barracks there. And the Nazi guards, as they always would, they decided to come down rather harshly. And they selected three of them to be hung upon a gallows. Two, two men and one small child. And they forced all of the Jews out of the barracks. They made them come outside and they forced them to face the, the gallows and watch. And these two men and the small child were hung upon this gallows in front of the entire camp. The two men died very quickly. The young child hung by his neck for 30 minutes with his legs kicking until he died. It took him 30 minutes to die. And the Jews were forced to watch it. And as Ellie was watching it, behind him there was a man that was whispering, where is God? Where is God? Where is he? Where is God? And I'll read from Ellie Wiesel's own words. Behind me I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me I heard a voice answer, where is God? He's here hanging from this gallows. And by that, what he meant was it wasn't just these three human beings who were being killed on this gallows. It was his faith in God as well. He lost his faith. See, we can, we can tell the story of Haman. And it's an important story to tell. But if we want to be honest and intelligent, we also need to tell the story of Hitler and the Holocaust and the number six million. What does a Christian say to this? The Christian speaks to this reverently, but with deep conviction. And this is what we say. We say, dear Mr. Wiesel, 
When you say God is on the gallows, you say more than you know, perhaps. Because we may not know how to necessarily justify the goodness of God alongside of human suffering. We may not necessarily know precisely how to make sense of these things. But we will say this much. God in Christ is not aloof to it. Because whatever it means to go to the gallows, whatever it means to suffer, whatever it means to be murdered, God in Christ has experienced. And Christ upon the gallows, Christ upon the cross, is not merely an act of solidarity. It's a redemptive act where, yes, he's taking our sin, sinned into him. He's taking our hate, hated into him. He's taking our violence, propelled into him. And he's recycling it and turning it into something else. But he joins us in our suffering that it might not merely be an act of solidarity, but an act of redemption so that ultimately our suffering has a point. And the point is that we can come out on the other side where mourn shall tearless be. And we believe in the resurrection. We believe that it is Christ himself who gave the full measure of devotion going down into our depth that he might open the door and lead us out to the other side so that we can confidently say, no matter how deep and profound our suffering, God ultimately makes all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And even if we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, we dare still to believe it. That in the midst of our suffering on the gallows, we are not left alone because God in Christ has joined us on the gallows of suffering and death. And by the way, I have some good news. I don't want to just bum you out tonight. The good news is the epilogue of Elie Wiesel. Yes, following the Holocaust, he lost his faith in God. He said God is on the gallows. God is dead to him. He wrote this book, Night, in 1960. But about 25 years later, he began to publish a different kind of book. Books with titles like Souls on Fire and Messengers of God. Books that are bursting with life and faith in God. And uh, Eugene Peterson, who's one of my pastoral heroes. Eugene Peterson, back when he was pastoring in Baltimore, he talked about how he one time he, he came across a flyer, some type of notice that Elie Wiesel would be speaking in one of the local colleges. And uh, Peterson had read this book, Night, but he had also read Souls on Fire and Messengers of God. And he was aware that there had been this turn in Elie Wiesel's life. And he was curious, how could a man who had gone through what he went through and lost his faith in God and wrote this awful book, this gut-wrenching book, how could this man have such a resurrection of faith? And so we went that night to hear this man speak to a secular audience, this man who was known for his Holocaust experience and his wonderful writings and his Nobel laureate. I'll let Eugene Peterson tell the story. Elie Wiesel walked to the platform that evening in Baltimore stood behind a music stand and began reading Genesis 15, the story of Abraham. Without small talk, preamble, explanation, or apology, he spent the next hour leading us a, a secular audience of seven or 800 people in what was essentially a Bible study. 
Everything he said could have been transcribed from a Wednesday night prayer meeting in a Baptist church. I copied down this sentence. Nothing is worthwhile compared to this. Searching Scripture, asking questions of the text, seeking the truth of God's Word. He was passionate, but without theatrics. He was intense without raising his voice. He made frequent references to prayer. He seemed to me a man who was quietly full of faith in the living God. He said nothing about what had happened or how it had happened, this resurrection from Auschwitz, Buchenwald, night to the graveyard of God and God's people to now this, this Baltimore Bible study on the living faith of Abraham. But he was a clear witness to the fact that it had happened and that it does happen. A person can go through the worst, having every shred of faith pulled away from the soul, leaving it bare and shivering in a world where all the evidence gives proof that God is dead and still become a person of faith alive to the living God. That's a man who can write. <laughs> when by providence you are spared from the gallows, God is there. And I, I hope that that's always your experience, that you're always spared from the gallows. But if it's not to be, if instead of being spared from the gallows, you suffer viciously on the gallows, I also want you to know God is there and he's with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. In fact, he promises to bring purpose to your suffering because he has dived into it with you. He's entered into your suffering. He has joined you in it so that he can lead you through it and out of it to the other side where every tear one day is wiped away, where it begins to make sense and all things are made new. And if you've come to this place tonight with a hurting soul and maybe the cry of your heart is, where is God in my life right now? Where can I find him? Where is God? Where is he? He's here, and he's here at this table. He's here in this bread, which is his body broken for you on the gallows. He's here in this cup, which is his blood shed for you on the gallows. And he invites every last one of you in this room to come. And he says, bring your pain, bring your anguish, bring your suffering, and come and be reminded that I have joined you in it. I join you in your suffering. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. Let me convey eternal life to you. Let the promise of eternal life sustain you. Jesus' promise is that you'll never be alone. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And he's proven it by going to the gallows on your behalf. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.